This is Unfilter, episode 323 for August 20th, 2020. And Americans understand, Anderson, that during a pandemic, there are lots of older voters and voters of all ages with a pre-existing condition who worry that they can't breathe safely uh, standing in line to vote. So in effect, by tampering with the Postal Service, he is in effect putting his knee uh, on the neck of American democracy and trying to make it impossible for people to vote by mail. Welcome into episode 323 of your people-powered podcast. This week, there's a great conspiracy afoot that threatens to attack one of America's institutions. We'll be getting into that in a little bit into this episode, as well as a bunch of really important news, some updates on the election, which, boy, is that quite the show to watch now. But, as always, we're going to start you out with a COVID update, and I'm I'm not horsing around on this one. Some of the major developments we are tracking right now, more than 5.4 million COVID cases now confirmed in the U.S. with at least 171,000 American lives lost. More than 68 million tested throughout this country. With me here starting us off is ABC chief medical correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And this is interesting, Jen. There is a news now about a potential treatment for COVID-19 that involves the use of horse antibodies. What? 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 Oh, this sounds like some horse shit. For COVID-19 that involves the use of horse antibodies. Tell us more, Exactly. Please. So this is under the umbrella of immune therapy. There's research being done right now in Costa Rica and Argentina that was inspired by the work they had done on treating snake bite poisoning with anti-venom treatments. Uh, they are using now horses that have been injected with part of the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. And then very similarly to what we're doing here in the U.S. and people, they then draw the blood from the horse, extract these antibodies, Then it goes to an industrial process of purifying these antibodies. Uh, Then they sent them to the National Center for Biodefense and Infectious Disease at George Mason University in Virginia to be tested. Their findings were that these antibodies neutralize the coronavirus. Wow. Really, really interesting result. Wow. A horse, of course. A horse, of course. Now, there is some scientific split over the safety of of a human challenge trial going on right now. Uh, And I think we're going to learn a lot of terms and a lot about how vaccines are made through this COVID-19 vaccine process. I feel like this clip contributes to a bit of that. Hey, Allison, more than 30,000 people around the world have now volunteered to take part in human challenge trials to be deliberately infected with the coronavirus in the hope of speeding up research into a vaccine. They're from a group called One Day Sooner, which argues that if we can get to a vaccine faster, even by just one day, we could save thousands of lives. Let me break down how this works. In a normal vaccine trial, I would go to the lab, be given the test vaccine, and then sent out into the world, and researchers would wait for me to catch the coronavirus naturally. The problem is, what if it takes weeks for me to catch the virus? What if it takes months? There can be a real lag time. In a human challenge trial, I go to the lab, I'm given the test vaccine. And then, and and then, and then, 
You sent to a Trump rally. Oh, no. Then scientists deliberately infect me with the coronavirus. So it cuts out that lag. The risks, however, are real. There's no known cure for the coronavirus right now. What happens if an otherwise healthy person dies during one of these experiments? We spoke to one of those 30,000 volunteers, a British teenager named Alistair, and we asked him, are the risks worth the benefits in an experiment like this? This is what he had to say. It's a scary thought, and um, obviously we need to really carefully think about and accept that things could go wrong, and they really could go wrong. And, you know, it's easy for me to sit here now and, and say, I think this is a great idea, but um, if I end up in hospital, if I end up on a ventilator, then I think I would still think the same thing, because it's providing so much good to so much of humanity that nothing I do would be in vain. America's youth should take note. Speaking of the youth, uh, the school openings, the school openings, the school openings. Key news late this afternoon, Notre Dame canceled all in-person classes after a dramatic spike in COVID-19 cases. Yesterday, there were 147 confirmed cases at the South Bend University since August 3rd on Sunday. That number was just 67 in-person classes started at Notre Dame just last week. Despite going to e-learning, students will be allowed to, to stay in their dorms. Indiana right now reporting 850 new cases of COVID-19 today and 28 more deaths. So it's going pretty good. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, it's interesting right now, if you go on YouTube and put in COVID-19 and just search by the last 24 hours, a lot of what you get is local news reports. You get, all, And that is a really interesting lens to look at this particular situation. But one of the great things about the Internet is there's more than just YouTube. There is access to all kinds of information and clips that go way back in the archive. I'll have some for you coming up in the show. Uh, C-SPAN is a legit resource and tool for this show as well. And here's a clip from the U.K. that talks about ramping up testing in preparation of winter because they're concerned about a gnarly COVID winter over there. We're just trying to get our act over here for the summer right now. We're just trying to get our act together still over here. <laughs> the UK is set to ramp up its coronavirus testing as it prepares to battle a potential second wave of COVID-19 this winter. At the moment, 28,000 tests are carried out on a fortnightly basis at households across the country. However, this is due to be increased to 150,000. The Office for National Statistics survey is key to working out the potential spread of the virus in the UK and helps the government decide whether rules should be tightened or lifted in specific areas of the country where an outbreak occurs. I wonder what happens when you start testing more. I wonder <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't get upset. I was just, I'm just teasing. There's uh, some good news for Aussies. Uh, you're guaranteed to get the poke, as they say. I think that's what they say. Or no, to get the jab. You're going to get the jab. The Prime Minister was promising a free COVID-19 vaccine for all of us today, made here in Australia. But there are a few strings attached. Firstly, someone has to find one. Here's our political editor, Peter Van Onsela. When good news strikes... Good morning, Sabra. Good morning, Neil. Good morning, David. Good morning, Michael. G'day, Carl. It's great to be here. It's a bit warmer in Sydney. The PM's always available. I like that they're doing bits here with this report. They're taking jabs at the PM for only being around when there's good news. In their news report... Um, and it's fun. You know, it's not like the sort of like Trump is the root of all evil and everything's only his fault kind of angle our media takes. There's they just sort of sort of take a little bit of a they do a bit about it. Like they have fun with the fact that he's a, 
a sunny day politician and not really a rainy day politician. Good morning, David. Good morning, Michael. Good day, Carl. It's great to be here. It's a bit warmer in Sydney. The PM's always available. Today's a day of hope. And Australia needs hope. The world needs hope. A pre-purchase agreement struck to buy 25 million doses of the Oxford University COVID vaccine. And it will be free for all Aussies. What's the reason that we're stockpiling the Oxford vaccine first rather than, for example, the UQ one? And we're taking advice on, on what should be in the, in the front of the queue for us. The Oxford uh, uh, vaccine, and they've, they've partnered with AstraZeneca, uh, is one of the ones that's published their early results. And, and as I said, they're looking very positive. What a game, huh? Could you imagine the pressure these vaccine manufacturers were under to get early results out? Because that's the name of the game is get these contracts on board, get these pre-purchase agreements, right? And if you get your information out there first, if you put out something before everybody else does that shows things are going in a positive direction, you get the contracts. You get the big, lucrative government contracts. The pressure internally to get to that milestone must have been so intense. Uh, is one of the ones that's published their early results. And, and as I said, they're looking very positive. All going well, the vaccine could be rolled out as early as the first half of next year. Is this the silver bullet that the country needs? First, the good news. I'd like to say there's a silver bullet when it comes to pandemic and, and a vaccine is about as close as you get to one. Now for the bad news. I wouldn't want to suggest that it's an overnight uh, silver bullet. No, I wouldn't want to suggest that at all. And this is just a letter of intent. Yeah, that's right. Today, the PM toured one of the facilities of the company charged with producing the vaccine. But we don't make, make vaccines here. <laughs> yeah, this is a, this is one of their bits. Uh, they make fun of him for taking a, a sort of a tour. He's got a medical jacket on. You know, he's got his doctor jacket. He's got his face mask on, and he's taking a tour of the vaccine manufacturing for the cameras. Except for they don't manufacture the vaccine here. Facilities of the company charged with producing the vaccine. But we don't make make vaccines here. The wrong facility, but it will be manufactured right here in Australia. Scott Morrison flagging that the jab might even be mandatory. This is an important part of our vaccine strategy. His chief medical officer seemed a little less enamoured by that idea. Of course, the, the first will be a, a, a voluntary uh, call for people. I don't think offering jelly beans is, is going to be the, the way to do that. The price of the vaccine isn't yet known, but given its potential, it's hard to imagine too many Australians worrying about the cost. Yeah, so what do you think of a mandatory uh, jab, as they put it? Also, improper mask usage. You see, the issue with the masks is if you're taking them on and off constantly, they're kind of shot once you start touching them. And so what they do is every time they step up to the microphone, they take the mask off and they hold it in their dirty little hand. And then when they step away from the microphone, they take it out of their hand, they, they straighten it back out with both hands, and then they put it back over their face. And they do this half a dozen times. And they're touching the microphone and all that stuff. It's, oh, it drives me crazy watching them do this. It's like, figure it out, guys. Figure it out. All right, so that's really what I'm going to do on COVID this week. It's not that I'm not tracking it. It's just that there's so much going on that we need to put in the show. And I have a lot to get through today. So I want to shift gears and talk about the thing that I've had the number one questions come in over the last week since the last episode, and that is, what the hell is going on with the U.S. Postal Service? Can you explain to me what's going on? Trump seems to be taking it head on as uh, a part of his re-election campaign. Is I think probably the most pervasive perspective is that it's 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 part of a of a campaign against the U.S. Postal Service to hinder the mail-in uh, voting, 
We'll get to all of it, why I don't think that's true at all, and maybe even a little bit of some background and history here of what's really been going on for quite a long time. But first, I kind of want to frame and set the context for you. So here's a tone of the reporting and kind of would make it makes it clear why people have an outlook that they do on this issue right now. President Trump spent part of his weekend attacking the Postal Service from his golf resort in New Jersey. Amazing, amazing first few seconds of this clip, the way she gets the jab in there at the golf course. And again, framing it around Trump, this Postal Service issue, as I will demonstrate in a few moments, goes way, way beyond Trump. But the way this is being framed today is that this has all become a problem as of Trump. The USPS has been dragged into a political fight over voting access. The service says it needs more funding to handle millions of additional mail-in ballots this November, or they may go uncounted. Weijia Zhang has the latest on the president's response. From his golf resort in New Jersey, President Trump defended his views on mail-in voting. The problem with the mail-in voting, number one, you're never going to know when the election's over. And he repeated his unsupported claim that mail-in voting will lead to fraud, even though he himself requested a mail-in ballot earlier this week. Oh, got him there. (laughs) This is how it's being framed, is it's Trump attacking the Postal Service with one of his lackeys to make sure that uh, they are reduced, they are hobbled in capacity, so that way they can't handle all Americans, all 300 million of us, or well, really, how many people are going to vote? Let's say 150 million at best, <laughs> I don't know, uh, will vote. Um, the idea being that he'll jam it up so bad that uh, everybody voting for Joe, their stuff won't get delivered in time, and he'll create uncertainty and doubt around the election. And that's exactly how that media piece was positioned. And you have notable members of the party like Susan Rice and Al Gore who are really flaming this or fanning this flame. By tampering with the Postal Service, he is in effect putting his knee uh, on the neck of American democracy. That's Al Gore right there. And when he was on Anderson Cooper and had that interview, it really turned this thing into high gear. The media kind of took that sentiment and really ran with it. Essential sorting machines removed, blue mailboxes literally hauled away on flatbed trucks. Mailboxes being picked up and stacked up. What's that about other than voter suppression? They're seeing some of their mailboxes in their communities uprooted. Uh, that's a problem. People are worried about the post office. You know, you're seeing, you know, uh, the mailboxes being taken away. Can we vote? What's going on? The removal of uh, mailboxes, uh, the removal of equipment within the postal offices and the rest is to undermine the postal service at a time when the postal services need it now more than ever. All right. So I'm going to address all of these points and try to debunk them for you. But to do it appropriately, to give you the full context of what the hell's going on is I need you to buckle up because we've got to go back in time. You got to go back quite a while to fully appreciate what's going on here with one of America's institutions, the U.S. Postal Service. Now, funny enough, there's a clip that explains a lot of this back in May before things got political. And so we're going to go back just a few months before this was an election issue and talk about it when it was just a U.S. Postal Service issue. And the truth is that for a long, long time, the U.S. Postal Service has been getting into a deeper and deeper hole. And now they're in a lot of debt. It's currently more than $160 billion in debt 
and it's telling Congress it will run out of cash by September and needs a $75 billion infusion. Now, to understand how things could have gotten so, so bad, you have to go back to the creation of what is really considered the modern version of the post office. Obviously, the post, the Postal Service has been around for forever, really, since really before um, the, the country itself. But the modern version actually comes from the uh, late... Well, this clip will tell you. The post office stands to be swamped, overwhelmed, drowned in a sea of mail. Where do we go from here? In 1967, the Postmaster General testified before Congress that the post office was in a race with catastrophe. There were all sorts of backlogs, and sorting room floors were bursting with unsorted mail. Combined with a postal worker strike in March of 1970, led to the Postal Reorganization Act and established the United States Postal Service as we know it today. The Post Office Department is leading the search for better ways to process and dispatch mail in the shortest time possible. The act eliminated the Post Office from the President's Cabinet and made the Post Office its own federal agency. It was set up more like a corporation than a government agency and had an official monopoly on the delivery of letter mail in the U.S. It also set up the elimination of the Post Office's direct government subsidies, which were completely phased out in 1982. The post office has been operating without any taxpayer money since. How about that? Since 82, they've actually earned their revenue from the sales of stamps and, and their other services that they offer for special mail and package delivery and their partnerships with private mailing companies have gener- where they generate their revenue. And things were going pretty good. In fact, even up until the early 2000s, we're going to fast forward now from 1967 to the early 2000s, things were actually okay. Even with email coming around, things started slowing down profit-wise, but they were still in the black. First-class mail volume peaked in 2001 at 103.6 billion pieces of mail. It operated at a loss in the first couple of years of the 21st century, but by 2003, it was back to operating at a profit. In fact, from 2003 through 2006, USPS recorded a total $9.3 billion profit. That all changed at the end of 2006. $9.3 billion, but then in 2006, the Republicans conspired to sabotage an American institution. H.R. 6407, a bill to reform the postal laws of the United States. Enter the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act, which was passed by the Republican-controlled Congress and signed into law by President George W. Bush. Up until this point, the post office added to and removed from its retiree pension and healthcare accounts on an ongoing basis, putting money in as needed based on its current retirees. This model is similar to the way many other companies and corporations fund their own healthcare pensions. This act changed all that. It required the post office to calculate all of its retiree pension and healthcare costs for the next 75 years including for people it hadn't even hired yet, and put away enough over the next 10 years to cover them. To put this in perspective, that'd be like you only working from age 18 to 28, and then expecting to live on that income until you were 103 years old. This is at the root of everything that began began their collision with oblivion. There's other things and other mismanagement decisions and whatnot in there, and there's their sometimes fraying into political areas they probably should not have. But this key fact, this change during the Bush Jr. era is truly what set the Postal Service up with oblivion. And it's widely believed, and I I agree, that it was done intentionally by the Republicans so that way they'd have an excuse 
to privatize it without having to come right out against a institution of America. They want to privatize it, but they it doesn't look good to be against the Postal Service. And the Postal Service has been pleading for years for help. By 2010, the post office's overall debt, which was just over $2 billion in 2006, had climbed to $12 billion. It sounded the alarm to Congress multiple times and was also the subject of a 2018 Trump administration report saying the pension obligation should be restructured, but nothing changed. In its most recent annual report, the post office said it had incurred almost $78 billion in losses from 2007 to 2019. It couldn't afford to make any payments into the fund from 2012 to 2016, and now owes about $55 billion related to its future pension and health benefit obligations. Which brings us to today. As with many other industries, the coronavirus has taken its toll on the post office. First class and marketing mail have plummeted, and the post office expects a $13 billion decline in revenue. The Postmaster General has told Congress she expects the USPS to be completely out of cash by September. This would make it unable to pay its employees and could quickly cause disaster in mail delivery across the country, especially in rural areas not serviced by UPS and FedEx. Now, as I record this, September is not that far away. So the situation is extremely dire. And the Postal Service has gotten this disservice from Congress uh, and not in their failure to address this. They're essentially, them kicking this can for years now since since the Bush administration and the Trump administration is 100 percent aware of the situation. And we are now at a spot in time where their revenue is declined dramatically because of covid. And there's going to be an increased demand for for their services during the election when more Americans than ever mail in. Now, if I were in their position and my department or my my service had been this beleaguered, this mistreated for this long, I might be inclined to try to leverage the political nature of this situation to get attention to my dire situation. And in doing so, they brought a lot of ire, but they're also going to probably get about $25 billion of injection. Now, not enough, as we know, they need something greater than $75 billion just to clear them. But $25 billion is a lot better than the $10 billion they were likely going to be getting. So that's the background con- context for the state of the U.S. Postal Service and why it's in such a way. Now let's go through the recent claims about the mailboxes and the shutting down of machinery and the uh, all the conspiracies that show that this is a, a, a strategy by the Republicans for Trump to win. I think it's all crap. And uh, Sager from Rising, uh, from The Hill, is going to go down the list of claims, and he's just going to rip right through them better than I could, so I'll play his take on it with the entire thing linked in the show notes. So let's go down the list of claims, and we'll get the facts about each one. I'm relying heavily here for this monologue on a fantastic medium piece. It was written by Nick Harper. Also linked in the show notes. He's a nonprofit staffer who apparently is a better journalist than every other major national political reporter. Now, My personal favorite part about this conspiracy theory are the ones which supposedly have the most evidence. So the U.S. Postal Service, they say, is intentionally removing post office boxes off American streets and in some cases are even locking them up to prevent people from putting in their mail. 
evidence for these claims. It's in viral claims on Twitter, like this one from Thomas Kennedy. Dramatically shows a stack of post office boxes, dramatically stacked together. It was retweeted 82,000 times. I saw several versions of things like this on Reddit as well. That was actually one of the ways I first saw this story developing was people posting pictures on Reddit and Twitter. Or this one from Rex Chapman showing red locks on postal service boxes in Burbank, California. The dramatic image was retweeted 20,000 times. Or this one from Senator Claire McCaskill in which she shared a photo of a mailbox in D.C. with a lock on it. There's just one problem, however. That viral stack of mailboxes? Yeah, those have been there for years, and it was taken at a warehouse where they refurbish old post office boxes. <laughs> those locked boxes in Burbank, California? That photo's from 2016. And actually, those locks are meant to allow only one letter to be dropped in at a time to discourage mail theft. My personal favorite, Claire McCaskill's photo of a mailbox from D.C.? Well, it's from Capitol Hill. And by that, I mean Capitol Hill in Seattle, Washington. So once again, that device is also meant to discourage theft, not to actually render the machines functionless. I don't want to dunk too much, though. It is true that as a cost-cutting measure, the post office was removing some boxes off the street, mostly to reduce the hours worked by members of the post office and answer the outcry that was spurred on by false information about the office. And the post office ultimately came out and said, it will pause the practice completely. The next claim is that a new postmaster general is a Republican donor handpicked by Trump who assumed office two months ago with the sole purpose of destroying mail-in ballots for the election. This is one of the most common ones I've seen on Twitter and on Reddit again is that he's a Trump lackey. He's, don- he's donated, I think, quite a bit of money to Republicans, maybe even in the park of $2 million. So there's some truth to, to this aspect of it. And it's raised a lot of concern. There's just one problem that people don't really consider. Except there's a problem there. Trump does not have a say in who the Postmaster General is. The Postmaster General is selected by an independent board of governors, of which currently consists of three Republicans, a Democrat, who are unanimously selected him in May because he spent 35 years as the head of a logistics company, something that pertains to the post office. The next claim similarly sounds alarming until you dig into it, that the post office is destroying mail sorting machines, which are the same ones used to sort mail-in ballots. Well, that is interesting because the order to dismantle some of the mail machines went out on May 15th. And before this, the new postmaster general was even in charge. But as Nick Harper notes, the type of mail that these machines are sorting are decreasing in volume from last year, and it fits with the numerous documents that have been published by the government since 2012 in order to make the post office more efficient. Again, unfilter.show slash 323 for the sources on that information. So what we have here is the lack of leadership that has gone back until the Bush administration to properly address the needs of the post postal service. And it is being turned into this grand conspiracy about Trump refusing to fund the post office because he wants to impact their ability to deliver mail. And these old pictures from years ago from cities that they don't claim to be from are used as evidence online and memes. And it is right now a moment for you to observe how a completely overblown situation is turned into an anti-Trump campaign during the election season. You can, you can, it's all packaged for you right now. You can go look at all of it. All the clips are there, everything I've just played, but there's even more online. It's all packaged up for you as being framed as a Trump issue. And anything that goes against that narrative, they won't even, they won't even address. 
anything that might suggest that this has been a problem for a while, they won't they won't even entertain because it's all Trump, because it's all about getting rid of Trump. And the Democrats are no heroes in this, because if you are following the timeline, you'll know that between Bush Jr. and the Trump man, there was this guy known as Obama, and he was in the office, and he failed to do anything about it, and he slams the U.S. Postal Service while he was president. People say, well, how can a private company compete against the government? If you think about it, uh, you know, UPS and FedEx are doing just fine, right? The, the, uh, no, they are. I mean, it's, it's the post office that's always having problems. But Trump has been his own worst enemy. He, he has been fanning the flames on his own. He says things that, that are, well, essentially uninformed. He's, he's disconnected with how the process actually works, and it's totally deserving him. Which brings us to the last and final claim, which some of you are probably shouting at your screens right now. Sagar, you're an idiot. Trump himself already admitted to all of this in a recent interview. He straight up said he doesn't want to fund the post office because Democrats want to expand mail-in balloting. You're probably yelling, he admitted to it. And you know what? I don't blame you for thinking that. Because just like with Russiagate, Trump is his own worst enemy. But the truth is, is that as much as it may appear that Trump does not mind the idea of screwing with the post office to make it harder for people to vote by mail, that there's no evidence that anything like that is actually happening. The truth instead is that despite Trump's nefarious intentions here, is that what has happened instead is the culmination of years of problems with the post office, some self-inflicted, some imposed by budgetary constraints, which were engineered by Republican lawmakers who have long hated the post office and want to privatize it. The slow in service that has come about, as Nick Harper puts it, is, quote, there are changes happening to our postal system because it's been needed for a long time and USPS cannot wait any longer to make cost-saving changes without becoming insolvent within a year. And they may just simply have taken advantage of a very public situation to get attention on this, to get some emergency funding, to keep things going. Now there's going to be a political cost to pay for that. But it seems like some kind of deal was struck, and I think it's to the tune of $25 billion. New Postmaster General Louis DeJoy now says he is suspending cost-cutting changes until after the election to avoid even the appearance of any impact on election mail. Oh, oh, what a great idea. Okay, well, everybody must be happy then, right? House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is still demanding a vote on post office funding even after the Postmaster General announced he would be suspending changes until after the election. Chad Program has the latest from Capitol Hill. Chad, I suppose they're going to continue to ha uh, with their schedule for hearings. Not going to cancel. That's right. They're going to forge ahead with the vote this weekend. Have Lewis DeJoy, the postmaster general, before the House committee on Monday. And this morning, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi talked to DeJoy on the telephone. She called his announcement yesterday, quote, misleading. She was not pleased. There's a lot of Democrats who just don't trust DeJoy, including Greg Meeks, a Democrat from New York City. Uh-oh. So we'll see. More to come on this. But it, it appears that the most dramatic changes are on hold until after the election. What a concept. There was a brief news story about Russiagate, and it made me think, when I saw this story, I started thinking to myself, man, this is kind of playing out similar to the way Russiagate did before. And what if the strategy this time is like multi-pronged to so concern about 
the mail, to so concern about Russia like they're doing right now. And in a way, if if they if this is if this is a strategy from the Democrats to harm Trump, it seems like it'd also be a strategy to hedge their bets if their guy loses. Like underneath all of this, it seems like what could be what we could see if this is indeed a strategy by the left is a betrayal in their confidence of Joe. And I know I mentioned this last week, but I think this could be playing into that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure because it it would it, it would make a lot of sense if if you want to keep the current Democrats in power and you want a reason why they keep losing elections, you kind of need to start working on it before the election. Otherwise, you've got to you got to be responsible for why your party keeps losing. It would be a savvy strategy if they're doing that. So it it might not be true, but it would be savvy on their part. But uh, back to Russiagate, uh, I I still find this to be a fascinating story, and it was just briefly covered in the press that an ex-FBI lawyer has pled guilty to uh, criminal charges arising from the Durham probe that we're beginning to get more and more hype about. Fox News alert now. The Associated Press is now reporting that a former FBI lawyer will plead guilty to making a false statement in the first criminal case coming from the John Durham probe into the Russia investigation. That former lawyer is Kevin Kleinsmith. The Durham probe, of course, looking into the origins of the Russia investigation after the FBI opened that into whether the Trump campaign was coordinated with Russia in the 2016 election. Kleinsmith is being charged in federal court in Washington and is expected to plead guilty to one count of making a false statement, according to his attorney. Now, this is being messaged as the first of many to come. But almost immediately following this, there was a large announcement from the intelligence, the Senate Intelligence Committee, who has released their final Russia report. Yes, there was still a committee investigating Russia collusion. Moving on now to the Senate Intelligence Committee, which has just finally released the long-awaited final volume of its investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 election. The fifth and final chapter spans 1,000 pages and looks into counterintelligence concerns stemming from the possibility of collusion between Moscow and the 2016 campaigns. For more on this, let's bring in CBS News Intelligence and national security reporter Olivia Gaza. So, Olivia, what are we learning from this final volume? What are we learning? And how is it different from the report uh, that came from former special counsel Robert Mueller? Now, what I love here is she manages to answer that what's important about it is that it's not much different. Well, Vlad, as you just said, yes, the report has just come in close to a thousand pages and is among the most highly anticipated volumes that this uh, Senate committee was expected to produce, not least because it will retread a lot of the territory that the special counsel covered. (laughs) So I'll tell you what's in it, uh, because the headlines around this thing are so amped up. A major dump, uh, MSNBC cut to it from from their coverage of the DNC to talk about this a little bit. It's just, it's so turned up to 11. Um, and so what I encourage you to do, if you're curious at all, is I've linked to the report. Why not? It is a thousand pages. So you can also just grab the abstract or here I'll even give you a little bit of it. So this is from the abstract that I have linked to the show notes from the 1000 pages. And it says in 2016, Russian operatives associated with the St. Petersburg based Internet Research Agency. That's the troll farm. The RIA. They go on to say use social media to conduct 
an information warfare campaign designed to spread disinformation and social division in the United States. Masquerading as Americans, these operatives used targeted advertisements, intentionally falsified news articles, and self-generated content and social media platform tools to interact and attempt to deceive tens of millions of social media users in the United States. So they bought ads. They used the tools of Facebook and Twitter to buy ads, like tons of campaigns do, like tons of countries have probably done. The committee goes on to say, the committee found that the IRA sought to influence the 2016 U.S. presidential election by harming Hillary Clinton's chances of success and supporting Donald Trump at the direction of the Kremlin. So this troll factory was at the direction of the Kremlin. The committee found that the RIA, she's the committee found that the IRA social media activity was overtly and almost invariably supportive of the then candidate Trump to the detriment of Secretary Clinton's campaign. That's one of the most significant findings they have in this report. That's one of them. That right there. That what I just read you that their social media activity was pro-Trump. Ergo, the Russians were pro-Trump. And there's one other bit that doubles down on one Trump associate, that when you hear about the close ties and you hear about how they were really close to Trump in the way the media is covering this, and I opted this time to spare you guys. I'm not going to play you the 15 versions of the media overhyping this thing. I think you believe me when I say it's been overhyped. But here is one bit to the report that they doubled down on that has some credibility, and we'll talk about it. Between the former Trump campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, and who we now know to be a known Russian intelligence officer, Konstantin Kalimnik. Uh- so, huh, this known Russian intelligence officer is actually a Ukrainian who is believed to have ties to Russian intelligence, who has who's believed to have ties with Manafort. Uh, the report says that Manafort's relationship with this individual was longstanding. It developed as a result of his other relationships with Ukrainian and Russian oligarchs, and it was unequivocally troubling. It said, taken as a whole, Manafort's high-level access and willingness to share information with individuals closely affiliated with the Russian intelligence services, particularly Kalimnik and associates of Oleg Deripaska, who's another oligarch, uh, represented a grave counterintelligence threat. It was a risk. He didn't do anything necessarily, but it was a risk because he knew a guy who knows the guys that work for the intelligence agency and Manafort had a relationship with him. We don't know really how good of a relationship, but one person who's a little more familiar with this than the average bear would be Trey Gowdy. And he was on to talk about how Manafort really wasn't a spy. He wasn't some piece of remote intelligence operative. He wasn't some guy that was embedded in the Trump campaign so that way he could relay information to Putin. At best, he's a useful idiot for hire who just wants to make a buck. Uh, Paul Manafort is not a good guy. He's right where he should be. The Trump uh, campaign probably wishes they'd vetted him more. But, you know, Martha, he did what he did for money. That's the oldest motive known to man. He, he was cash-strapped. He thought they owed him money. So he's showing internal polls for himself, not, mm-hmm. not to help Donald Trump, but to help himself. So yeah. I congratulate Senate Intel. I mean, they worked hard on it. But in terms of takeaways, when you're talking about a Ukrainian or a Russian whose name we can barely pronounce, that, that is not the narrative we've been fed over the last four years that Trump colluded with Russia. There's no evidence of that. Yeah. Should those relationships exist? Is Manafort a bad guy? I'm not arguing that stuff. Relationships should not exist. 
Manafort is indeed a bad guy. I hope he has to rot in prison. Was it the president of the United States colluding? No. And their other biggest point of evidence is Trump publicly joking about Russia sharing Hillary's emails. That's their other big piece of evidence. Well, evidence is a bit of a strong term. That's that's what a lot of when when people uh, want to make accusations, that's the thing they'll cite. I should put it that way. Years of Russiagate. Years. And that's what they got. And they're dropping that now, that intelligence report now, to get ahead of the Durham report. There's just no doubt about it. Because they have to justify the last three, four years of their existence. And I think we'll probably see something else. Something probably from the FBI. I'm not sure. If they're smart, they'll get ahead of it. If they're smart, they'll get ahead of it. Because from what I have heard, the report is going to look very bad for the FBI. We'll see. I think it was... um, I took a screenshot and I shared it in the Discord. I think it was... uh, Oh, it was like midday, and then uh, within 15 minutes, six or seven different outlets all of a sudden had headlines about this intelligence report. Now, oh, this is the doozy we've been waiting for. All the ties, they're all exposed and laid bare in this report. This thousand pages, thousand pages, thousand pages. I took a screenshot of it and posted it in the, in the Discord for the media channel because it's just like so clearly everybody just got their talking points and ran to the presses. It was, uh, it was a news dump that I really think is set to hedge against the Durham report. We'll see. Oh, it's time for a little show-shaption. A little show-shaption. Before we uh, go any further, we probably should stop and do a little bit of the basics. Patreon.com slash unfilter if you want to support this here podcast. Got a few new signups over the last week. Thank you very much. If you haven't done it yet, now's a good time because it was just recently that I posted my breakdown, my real-time breakdown of the United States of Conspiracy, a frontline special that really does a doozy to rewrite the history of conspiracy theories. all kinds of like really neat, tidy things that they bring together and connect all these little dots that really kind of needed a full analysis of what's going on because it was really thick. It's like kind of decoding uh, a thick script or uh, even decompiling a complex program and kind of explaining what's happening there. It was it was a lot. So I just do it in real time and I made that as a special for our patrons and all of our patrons have access to it at patreon.com slash unfilter. Also, thank you to everybody in the Discord who just hangs out and keeps the conversation civil. I've been very impressed by that. If you'd like to join that, unfilter.show slash Discord. And last but not least, you can email me at uh, unfilter.show slash contact, where I've got uh, a form that you fill out, and then it sends it to my Proton Mail, which is encrypted and uh, hosted in Sweden, I believe, to avoid them NSA rules. How about that? I'm not saying you have anything nefarious to send me. I'm just saying you can have some level of confidence, at least. All right, resuming the show. During an election, it's always great to frame things as unprecedented. And that's what the new attack group, the Lincoln Project, who are Republicans, have to say about Trump. The reviews are in. You have to go by where... Look. Here's what Trump's own people are saying about him. He's a f***ing moron. Rex Tillerson, Trump's Secretary of State. We're lower than the world. Lower than the world. He tries to divide us. James Mattis, Trump's Secretary of Defense. You had a group on one side and you had a group on the other. Very fine people on both sides. 
He's an idiot. John Kelly, Trump's chief of staff. They weren't laughing at me. A professional liar. Gary Cohn, Trump's economic advisor. There will be no lies. He thinks he's God. Barbara Raz, SVP of Trump Organization. I am the chosen one. Like an 11-year-old child, Steve Bannon, Trump's advisor. I don't take responsibility. I think we need to look harder at who we elect. I don't think he's fit for office. I have the most loyal people. Can America survive four more years? We are better than this moment we're in. Yep. That's the latest from the Lincoln Project. You know, it, it feels like it just needs a celebratory eagle when uh, it's with that voiceover guy. So here we go. That's intense, huh? They're really coming at them. And it's during the week of the DNC convention. And because of the big Rona, it's a virtual convention. And it's been a bit rocky. If any of you have ever, ever been stuck in a Zoom meeting, it's, it's kind of like that. Listen carefully. And now, please welcome Dr. Jill Biden. You're up. I- Again, tell her, Q, it's you up. You're up. It's your Q. Go. There's a lot of delays, people's cameras cutting out, some awkward stuff like that. There's been some good moments, too. I think Jill and Joe have done a really good job. And they rolled out a bunch of the classics. A lot of the classics came out. Of course, your buddy John Kerry was there, and your good buddy Bill Clinton had a big speaking moment, and he went right after Trump for COVID-19. We have just 4% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's COVID cases. Our unemployment rate is more than twice as high as South Korea's, two and a half times the United Kingdom's, more than three times Japan's. Donald Trump says we're leading the world. Well, we are the only major industrial economy to have its unemployment rate tripled. At a time like this, the Oval Office should be a command center. Instead, it's a storm center. The pre-recorded nature, I think, was very beneficial to the older delegates (laughs) and the the, uh, politicians like Bill. Um, The DNC in this is really setting a message. And I'm it's it's brazen. It's so in our face that I'm I'm a little surprised they're not doing it with more tact. And that is clearly that this is a return to to the traditional corporatist Democrat Party, that the fringes, the progressive fringes, the populist fringes have not been successful. And so not only are we rolling out the classics like John Kerry and Bill Clinton, but we're even bridging the divide and bringing over Republicans and giving them prime speaking positions. The DNC has really got a calculus they're doing here. We've got something really special happening. America is at a crossroads. Sometimes elections represent a real choice, a choice we make as individuals and as a nation about which path we want to take when we've come to challenging times. This is John Kasich, Republican governor, who is literally standing at a crossroads, you know, to sort of really kind of bring home the metaphor. And the convention even plays up the the angle of what a moderate Joe is. Joe is such a moderate. It's something that they really hammer home, that this is a time that calls for a moderate, somebody who will work with the Republicans, somebody who's even buddies with the Republicans. I'm not kidding you. This is a promo they played at the convention that plays up what buddies Joe Biden and John McCain are. Because now apparently... The, the DNC, the Democrat, the Democrat Party loves to hold guys like Kasich and McCain and Bush Jr. 
in these high esteem positions. John and Joe traveled thousands of miles together. The families got to know each other, gathering for picnics in the Biden's backyard. They would just sit and joke. It was like a comedy show sometimes to watch the two of them. But when John was elected to the Senate as a Republican from Arizona, they found themselves on opposing sides. We're in different parties. We hold different views on many issues. They'd be going at it on the floor and you'd think, oh, these guys must really, really, really dislike each other. And they'd be having dinner that night together. That's because they're on the same side. There isn't Democrats and Republicans at this level. There's the corporatists. There's the establishment. And what's clever about this framing is it takes that disadvantage and spins it as an advantage. This is clever. This is if you're going to take a candidate with these flaws, this is the way to make up for it is you take the fact that he's a do nothing politician who has a history that is very questionable. You spin all of that by by framing him as somebody who works across the aisle when in reality they're just working for corporate interests and they always have been the security state and corporate interests. And that's the Democrat Party that is leading right now. And, and it's so far away from the, the populist energy that really gave Bernie's campaign life or that politicians like AOC have ridden into positions of power and fame. And Joe even recently has made it clear in interviews that he's not a left politician. He's, for example, like one of the kind of go-to most commonly uh, asked for when polled things in the Democrat base. Uh, boy, if I could say that a little clearer, I would say, if I could clear that up, I'd say, when polled uh, on common issues, the issue that the Democrat base seems to agree on the most is universal health care should happen, or at least health care should be detached from employment especially during a pandemic, right? Like, that's why it's polling so strongly right now. Even in that light, Joe Biden isn't moving to the left. Even with Bernie Sanders and AOC, he's not moving to the left, as indicated in this interview. As I've mentioned, so many weaknesses in the healthcare system. Um, the most vulnerable, often black and brown communities, uh, have been handling much of the financial burden. Before the pandemic, you were against comprehensive single-payer system. Um, now, if, Med if Medicare for All came across your desk as the pandemic um, has hit so hard, would you veto it? It's not going to come across my desk, but... Why not? The, the, look, the pandemic has not only torn through our nation, devastating families and wrecking economies, it's exacerbated some of the worst inequities. I'm going to fight for health and health equities, but health equities. He's going to fight for health equities. That's what they've reduced it to. Not universal health care, not health care for all, not removing health care from being attached to your employment status. But now this platitude of health equities. And I, I appreciate this Yahoo reporter because she kind of pushed him on it. She's like, well, during the pandemic, hasn't it been obvious that our healthcare system needs a reboot? But hasn't this pandemic and the tsunami of layoffs shown the limits of private health care um, that is tied to employment? No, it hasn't, in my view. There's countries. No, it hasn't. There's countries that uh, have done just fine with it and without it. He's got an answer for it. He's ready for that question. And you see what's hap what's at what's at exposed here what is being exposed here is 
a strategy, a chosen strategy by the Democrats to leave the lower end of the middle class and the poor behind and to aim for the upper middle class and rich technocrats. And that's not me saying it. That's Chuck Schumer saying this in 2016. And it's obvious we're seeing the 2016 playbook be used here. Joe Biden is essentially Hillary Clinton 2.0. It's the same playbook. They just have the fringe more in line this time. This is Chuck Schumer from 2016 putting it all out there. Second point. For every blue-collar Democrat we will lose in Western PA, we will pick up two, three uh, moderate Republicans in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And you can repeat that in Ohio and Illinois and Wisconsin. Uh, the voters who are most out there figuring out. Now, here is a CNN panel who is, this is current from the DNC convention, kind of doubling down on this approach. I would also say this is a culmination of Joe Biden's political career. He works with Republicans. He crosses the aisle. If you're going to expect a convention that does not reflect that, uh, progressive should, uh, some progressives should have nominated their chosen candidates. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, here's why it matters. Here's why it matters. Because it would be kind of fantastic for the country if Joe was truly a centrist who was going to split the difference between the right and the left and come to some kind of compromise a position that Trump also claimed he would take. That would actually be kind of a good thing. And you could see the argument for it. It's the argument. It's the narrative they're going with. The reality is he's an extremist, but not a progressive extremist. He's a corporatist extremist. He's a national security extremist. He's the same kind of politician that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Bill Clinton are. And he's been around for their entire reigns. He's not different. He's no different. He is of that same cloth that these historical, entrenched, awful Democrats are from. He's part of that same crew. That's why he knows it's never going to come to his desk, because his crew is never going to send it to his desk. And the problem is, is that Democrats have known that to win, they need to go as they need to lean more populist to excite people to come out and vote for them. They need to get the youth. They need to get the youth vote. They need to promise real change because for about 30 plus years, Americans have been very unhappy. This was evident in Barack Obama's hope and change mantra. He promised hope and change. Of course, when he got in office, not much change, did it? But he promised it. That's what he ran on. Barack Obama's hope and change was appealing to populists. But this is something we've known for Democrats for a very long time. This is Bill Clinton on October 15th, 1992. And he's not appealing to the corporatists. He's appealing to the people to win. This is when he's running against Bush in 92. I've been governor of a small state for 12 years. I'll tell you how it's affected me. Every year, Congress and the president sign laws that makes us, make us do more things. It gives us less money to do it with. I see people in my state, middle class people, their taxes have gone up in Washington and their services have gone down while the wealthy have gotten tax cuts. I, I have seen what's happened in this last four years when in my state, when people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. And I've been out here for 13 months meeting in meetings just like this ever since October with people like you all over America. People that have lost their jobs, lost their livelihood, lost their health insurance. What I want you to understand is the national debt is not the only cause of that. 
It is because America has not invested in its people. It is because we have not grown. It is because we've had 12 years of trickle-down economics. We've gone from first to 12th in the world in wages. We've had four years where we produced no private sector jobs. Most people are working harder for less money than they were making 10 years ago. It is because we are in the grip of a failed economic theory. And this decision you're about to make better be about what kind of economic theory you want. Not just people saying, I want to go fix it, but what are we going to do? What I think we have to do is invest in American jobs, American education, control American health care costs, and bring the American people together again. There was a time when the party knew that's how they had to speak, but now they think they figured it out. They can get the well-off people where everything's just fine. Everything's going just fine for them, so they don't want any change. That's who they're appealing. That's who they're going for now. And it's just so, it's so blatant and in, in our face with this virtual convention that is awkward and hard for me to watch as somebody who's watching from a production standpoint. Also, fun side note, I don't know if you knew this, Bill Clinton is actually younger than Joe Biden. How about that one? I believe Bill Clinton is 74, and I think Joe Biden, from going from memory, is 77, almost 78. So Bill Clinton is younger than Joe Biden, and that just blows my mind. The obvious question and really nobody brought it up, is not only are they trotting out the, de- the Democrat classics and saying, you know, the old way of the party is the way forward, but it's also the party closing the book on the Me Too movement. It has to be. Because Bill Clinton is front and center. And just before he even went on with his pre-recorded statement, there were pictures of him released with Jeffrey Epstein's victim. Very interesting timing on that leak. But he's he's like the man that's managed to dodge the Me Too movement. But you'd think they'd want to distance himself so it wouldn't be brought right in front of all of our faces. And really, credit goes to CNN's Scott Jennings as he's really the only one on the air that asked the question. I, I am dumbfounded by this, Bill. How, how is it that Bill Clinton has not been canceled by the Democratic? How has he survived all of these waves of cancellation when he has been one of the biggest violators of these rules at all these years. I mean, we, we talked last night about the use of character. We talked about, we talked about the use of, listen, we talked about the use of character to try to say Donald Trump is a man of low character. Joe Biden is. Okay, fine. Trump is fine. That's, that's, he's fair game on that. It's totally fine. So you're going to say that in one breath and then say, Character matters. Ladies and gentlemen, Bill Clinton. I mean, and the redemption argument doesn't hold up because then what about Al Franken? Does Al Franken not get redemption? What about other Democrats? It just doesn't hold up. It's because he is a famous politician and he's part of the establishment elite. See, what's what's really happening here is these individuals have been more involved with politics than they have since they were in office. Like they've, they've been super hyper involved in the last couple of years preparing for this election, and now they want their attention and they want their credit. And if they just, if they just can make the case that Biden is a better bet than Trump, that's all they really have to do. They, they, they've done the math. They see the polls and they know the number one reason people would vote for Joe Biden is he's not Donald Trump. And what Trump is missing this time around, and it's painfully obvious, is he's not making the same appeal to populists like he did in 2016. I think the reason Trump won is because he was the anti-establishment 
drain the swamp, blow the machine up candidate who didn't talk like a regular politician, who wasn't Hillary Clinton, the establishment. That, I think, got him a lot of votes. And the Democrats now, interestingly, seem to be kind of tacitly admitting that Bernie supporters ended up jumping ship for Trump. Not all of them, obviously, but a sizable percentage that they actually think they can measure bailed to Trump because he was a populist appealing candidate. And he's not doing that this time around. I don't know if it's the limitations and restrictions of being in office, but he's not making some of those same appeals. He's trying to walk the line occasionally, but he's doing a poor job. I'll give you an example. Um, you congratulated Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene in a tweet. You called her a future Republican star. Um, Greene has been a proponent of the QAnon conspiracy theory. Uh, she said that's something that should be would be worth listening to. Um, do you agree with her on that? Well, she did very well in the election. She won by a lot. She was very popular. Uh, she comes from a great state. And now listen, as he kind of does a little dancing here, he will not come right out and disavow QAnon because he knows there's a base out there that it plays really well to, because in that QAnon narrative, he's a bit of a hero, isn't he? She had a tremendous victory, so absolutely, I did congratulate her. Please, go ahead. Really on QAnon go and ahead, her decision please. to embrace that, that conspiracy theory. Do you agree with her on that? That was the question? Go ahead, please. I just wanted to ask you, uh, what ails your brother Robert, and how's he doing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, Trump's brother uh, passed, too. That is a thing that happened. And he just seems to have sort of shrugged it off. It doesn't really seem to have uh, taken the wind out of his step at all. Um, so that's an example where he won't really come quite out and just say, no, I don't have anything to do with QAnon because he likes that it kind of energizes a portion of his base. And then there's this total change of tone around Edward Snowden that has to also be an appeal to a certain voter base because it's a dramatic shift in the way Trump has talked about Snowden. Do you want to give Edward Snowden a pardon and bring him back? You, you once suggested that. Well, I'm going to look at it. I, I mean, I'm not that aware of the Snowden situation, but I'm going to start looking at it. There wow. It didn't prevent you from calling him a traitor and suggesting perhaps even the death penalty in the past. There are many, many people. It seems to be a split decision. There are many people think that uh, he should be somehow treated differently. And other people think he did very bad things. And I'm going to take a very good look at it, okay? I mean, I, I've, I've seen people that are very conservative and very liberal, and they agree on the same issue. They agree both ways. Uh, I'm going to take a look at that very strongly, Edward Snowden. Yeah, please. Yeah, we'll see about that. That feels like one of those kind of put it out there kind of things. We'll see. It seems like it's a way to appeal to some um, and without ever taking a hard position. And instead, they're focusing on... The law and order stuff still. They're still trying to attack uh, Kamala and um, Joe for being too progressive, which is ridiculous. Joe has a record. Kamala has a record. They are clearly not super left-leaning politicians. It just seems like a ridiculous attack strategy, and that's still their route. And the issue is, is it constantly backfires? Because identity politics is alive and well in the 2020 election cycle. And the moment Trump goes after the VP pick, they can pull the racist sexist card on him. ABC even calls him a playground troll. 
We all know President Trump's political style is not so much to debate opponents as it is to troll them, deploying playground insults and childish nicknames to paint a vivid picture in the public mind. But You know, the balanced news at ABC over there. <laughs> Maybe it's not a bad description, though. I don't know. In Kamala Harris, he's got a complex and accomplished opponent that he can't really seem to pin down yet. But he's trying. So the most direct uh, take at this has been if Trump criticizes her, it's racism. There has been criticism already of Kamala Harris, and many feel that it, some of the remarks have been sexist. Do you worry about racism and sexism affecting this race? How should Senator Harris and their campaign respond to these kinds of attacks? Well, the culture is sort of primed to be racist. It's primed to be sexist. Will Donald Trump's racism be an even bigger issue in this campaign moving forward? He has so often employed uh, racially incendiary language. As well as sexist language. They won't even hide it. Uh, it's going to be uh, racial, misogynistic, <laughs> racist tropes that have already been coming out. Misogynist and sometimes racist attacks. Racist and sexist attacks. Those attacks play directly into racist and sexist stereotypes. They're going to throw the kitchen sink at Kamala Harris. It'll be uh, laced with racism. 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 And sexism. 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 I mean, the way that we have come uh, to see this president. That's not sexism we're even getting at. That is thinly, barely veiled racism. So this is literally every single news network i don't know if you're getting that but it's they're really laying it on um and it it really seems over the top obviously and uh, i there was still another 25 seconds to that clip <laughs> i just decided to spare you <laughs> i just you know sometimes when you put it together you're like yeah this will be good and then you get listening you're like holy shit <laughs> that's enough that's enough cut it off i've got some good news to wrap us up on if if you're thinking about selling a car a used car it appears to be a seller's market right now. The demand for used cars is soaring. At the start of the pandemic, used cars, or as dealers like to say, pre-owned vehicles, were almost untouched by prospective buyers. Now, as our transportation correspondent, Gio Benitez, reports, they're practically flying off dealer lots. As so many are struggling for cash, there's some good news right now for people looking to sell, buy, or downsize their cars. The pandemic has actually helped. Used vehicle prices are rising while trade-in values are increasing dramatically. You know, it's funny. I, unrelated to this story, decided to trade in one of my vehicles and get something different. And I looked it up and I was like, damn, I'm getting a really good trade-in value. Like, I did not expect to get this good of a trade-in value. So I'm going to take it out. I could trade it in and just get the other vehicle I wanted, which is lighter and easier to tow with Lady Jupes. I might be able to just pay for it with the trade. That's When does that happen, right? That's a great opportunity. And the car had begun to exhibit some issues. So it seemed like perhaps it was the right time. And it had 143,000 miles on it as a 2012. Just kind of seemed like it was time. And it was too heavy to tow. So I'm... Looking up the kind of car that I want it has to be just the right kind of car to fit the family. I'd like it to be towable. I'd like it to even have all-wheel drive if possible. You know, I'm trying to check all these boxes, and I find one two and a half hours away from my home base. So my wife and I, we load up in the used car, thinking we'll take it down to trade in. We're going down, and we're stopping by a town called Renton, which has one of my favorite restaurants, Jimmy Max Roadhouse. Not the same since the Rona, but we stop there to have lunch anyways. Come out to get in the car. 
and the engine refuses to keep running. It'll start, but then it almost immediately dies. I troubleshoot and figure out I have a fuel filter issue, but I can't get the car back on the road. I'm on the way to trade it in, and it dies on me. Ended up having to Uber home for an unbelievable cost, and then come back at 4 a.m. the next day to get the car because it starts fine when it's cold because of a fuel filter issue or a pump issue. Now I have to drive it back up, get it fixed, get a whole bunch of work done on it. So I'm hoping the values continue to climb to pay for that. (laughs) Because this car was, it knew it was on the way out, you know? It knew it. Ah, boy, that was a long day. And it was like 95 degrees out. I'm exhausted. I tell you what, I need a nap. It has been a crazy week. But thank you for your support at the Patreon, patreon.com slash unfilter. Links to everything I talked about today with extra stuff in there at unfilter323. See you next week. Mommy needs a joint.